Hallelujah. Amen. Well, welcome. This is just so exciting. You know when the when the anticipator's kind of up? It's just this excitement that just kind of stirs the air and all of us just kind of get a little bit crazy. Let me tell you, I am so grateful and so thankful that Don has responded to come. I uh, haven't had a whole lot of time to know the man, but as Sean Wilder said, once you see him, you know there's that, uh, that connection, the heart that connects. But just even the short conversation that I've had with him, what's important for you to know is that everywhere he goes, he knows it's by divine appointment. So with your expectator, know that your purpose to be here, and he's purpose to be here, and there's something that can take place in all of our lives through the experience that Don's had. And we're going to take the next three days, and we've given him whatever liberty is necessary for him to be able to convey what, convey what he believes is important. And so uh, if you've read his book or you've seen his movie or have read anything about him, uh, it'll give you just a, a glimpse of who this man is. Because until you come to his person, you really begin to understand uh, the frailty yet also the overcoming presence has now captured his life. So with that, sir, give your hand. Give him a love offering with Thank your hands. You. Come on. God bless you. Thank you so much. Thank you for that uh, great introduction. How are you tonight? Are you good? good. Yeah. You must be because I heard you singing and I'm uh, delighted uh, uh, to be a part of this and to be here for the the uh, Feast of the Tabernacles and the Festival of Booths. Um, thank you, Pastor Lonnie and Kathy and, uh, and Sean. And it's great to see you, Betty and Leanne. And it's good to see all of you. I'm, uh, I'm delighted to be here. I just came from uh, Parkersburg, Parkersburg, West Virginia, where I spoke last night. It seems like this is not up very loud. But... Um, I can be heard, I promise you. Uh, and then I was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana for three days. Baton Rouge, uh, 140,000 people lost their homes down there in the flood. And the reason I do what I do, is, as far as the ministry is concerned, like offerings and, and, uh, and book sales and everything, is so I can go to places like Baton Rouge and try to bring hope, uh, which is what we do uh, for folks who don't have any. Um, you know, you drive through the neighborhoods and you see all these piles of uh, uh, sheetrock and uh, flooring and carpet and stuff like that. And then you realize that also in the midst of those piles of rubble are wedding gowns and pictures and photos and yearbooks and things that they'll never be able to replace because they're all gone. So uh, the world is looking for hope, and uh, hope is all we have sometimes. So we're going to talk about that the next couple of days, uh, three days, and um, I'm, I'm just delighted to do it. I wrote this book about it uh, years ago, and I wrote it so I wouldn't have to talk about it. That has not gone well. Um, this book uh, is called 90 Minutes in Heaven, and um, it, uh, it so far has sold 7 million copies in 46 languages. So uh, be careful what you tell God that you will do. I try to put something behind me and God put it in front of me. Have you noticed this sometimes? You try to get over something, past something. That is the very thing that God uses to try to bless someone else. Whether you want to, to do that or not, go back over a very tragic and painful set of circumstances. So we'll visit 
uh, about this uh, in the next couple of days. And uh, I'm going to talk about these things unless the Lord directs otherwise. I'm going to talk about answered prayer. I believe God answers prayer. I'm going to talk about miracles. If you live long enough, you're going to need one. You may need one now. We're going to talk about overcoming because sooner or later we've been knocked down, but we don't have to be knocked out. I, uh, I've, I've been through a long, dark night. My entire family was. My entire church was. So um, uh, we're going to talk about overcoming, finding a new normal. Because sometimes something happens to you and you're never going to be the same again. But you can be defeated by it or you can use that as a blessing to other people. Then we're going to talk about heaven and how to get there. And we're taking reservations. I'm not kidding. We're taking reservations. You see, the truth is we love you here and we want to love you there. Because we don't get to stay here in case you haven't noticed. So we're wanna, we want to make sure the people of Vermont and New Hampshire and Canada and, and New York and all the people who live in this part of the country are ready to go to heaven because you could get killed on the way to church. It happened to me. And shortly you're going to leave church. So you better be ready. It's an urgent appeal for all the right reasons. If you're a guest with us tonight, we're very glad you're here. Thank you for coming. Praise Chapel. We're delighted you're here. And I ask you and encourage you to come when I'm not here. I don't know whether you know this or not, but they have church every week here. So every, everybody needs a church family. I was watching, we were having a, a dinner earlier this evening and watching the interaction of the people here. Oh, how they love each other. What a family it is. You just can't manufacture that. It's either of God or it isn't. So you need a family like that. Uh, you're going to see some things that we went through. Went through, And I, I can assure you, we could not have made it through these things without a church family. So I encourage you to be a part of something. If you're not already involved in a congregation in this area, come back here and uh, fall in love with these folks. And you'll be glad you did. Because they need you and you, you need them. Welcome. Well, this is a testimony, really. It's a testimony. Uh, everybody has one if you're a follower of Jesus. Or maybe you didn't uh, write a book. Maybe you, they didn't make a movie about it. Maybe, you know, but I want to I assure you this. Your testimony is ever been as important as mine. Because you're in places I can't be, and things happen to you that never happened to me. And it may be the very thing that somebody else wants to hear, needs to hear. So I want to encourage you in this regard. Don't, don't just come and hear this guy that got killed in a car wreck. Uh, you, know, it, you need to be very much aware of the powerful nature of your own walk with Jesus and how it can affect other people. So I want to encourage you in that regard. Don't just walk away from here saying, wow, powerful story. I had a pastor one time after I finished, he said, wow, that's the best wreck story I ever heard. And I thought, okay, um, all right. Um, you know, you have your own story, so I'm encouraging you in that regard. A lady walked up with a copy of this book recently, and it was all torn up and dirty. Incidentally, let me, let, let's show the, the books. Uh, we have some of these books with us, and we don't have some of them. Uh, up at the corner up there is, is the book, 90 Minutes in Heaven. And the reason this one doesn't look like that one is because this is a movie edition of the book. It's the same book. It just has a lot more stuff in it. 
you know, like about the movie and a big section of pictures in the middle and a lot of additional things like uh, scriptures about prayer and heaven and things like that at the end. There's a whole chapter in here on letters I have received from Afghanistan and Iraq from soldiers and how the book meant something to them over there when the bullets were flying. So uh, this is that book. Um, we have a few uh, copies of the children's edition of the book. And, and you may ask, why do you have a children's edition of the book? Because kids want to know about heaven too. They go to class on Monday and there's an empty desk. Their parents bring them in and tell them that grandpa has passed away. So they want to know about heaven. So we, we took out some of the more graphic elements of the wreck, which are really pretty gruesome, and we rewrote it just for kids with some, some line drawings in there so they can see pictures of things that we don't have any pictures of. The devotional book, incidentally, it's also an audio book. If you'd rather listen to it driving through all the leaves, uh, you can just listen to it in, instead of read it. Uh, the devotional book is pretty self-explanatory. There are 90 stories in the book about um, hope and healing, uh, one a day for uh, three months, and um, uh, they have prayers with them and scriptures uh, verses with them. It's a good way to start the day or the middle of the day or the end of the day. Uh, they're about five to seven minutes long. Heaven is Real is a book that's very close to my heart. It's a book about how to get through tragedies and personal suffering. Um, the subtitle of that book is Lessons on Earthly Joy. It's based on this premise. If you know where you're going, shouldn't you be having a better trip on the way? And I mean a lot of believers are not having a good trip at all. And maybe something really tragic or painful has happened to them. But they need to know if they can get through it. And uh, I had to figure that out myself. So it's a very personal book, Lessons on Earthly Joy, Heaven is Real. Getting to Heaven is a book about um, how to live on the way to heaven. We have a Savior that's not only provided us a better place, He's told us how to live on the way to the place. These are His words from John 13 through 17. Uh, the book on uh, the bottom, incidentally, is my wife's book. She is the hero of this story. You'll find out why uh, as we uh, kind of unfold the story uh, in the next three days. But uh, she's the hero. And that's her book about overcoming tragedy, about how to get ready for it before it happens, and um, uh, how, to, how to be a caregiver. How important are people who care for others? I certainly couldn't have survived uh, in any way, shape, or form without my wife. The lady walked up with the book, and the book was torn, dirty, and really messed up. I almost commented on the book, but I'm glad I didn't. She gave it to me to sign, and after this uh, service, I'll sign books out there uh, just outside those doors. And uh, so I was signing the book, and I was very much aware the book was in bad shape, and uh, I almost said something. And she said, this book is not my book. This book belongs to my little girl. I said, oh, it's your daughter's book. She said, yes, it's my daughter's book. I said, I see. She said, I did not know she owned it. It was in her backpack when she got off the school bus and was run over and killed. I said, is your daughter's book? Yes. I said, was your daughter a follower of Jesus? Oh, yes. She said, my daughter was very devoted to the Lord. She was a great source of inspiration to me. I see. Well, I'm sorry for your temporary separation from her, I said. It's real, but it will not last. She said, I could hardly bring myself to read the book. I, I finally cracked it. You know, I just opened it up, and I realized... 
and I recognized my daughter's handwriting. She had written all kinds of things in your book. She had underlined things. She drew circles around scriptures. She drew arrows to things that she obviously thought was very important. And so I ended up devouring the book. I read the book. When I read the book, Mr. Piper, I realized I was not ready to go to heaven myself. So I gave my heart to Jesus. I know where I'm going now. The question is, do you? Are you sure? You know, the Bible says you can be sure. You can know that you are saved. I think a lot of people struggle with that. You know, it's a question of worthiness. Well, don't wait till you get worthy. You'll never, you'll never be worthy. But you can know that you're saved. You can know that. And the Bible says God wants you to know this. So you're not living in doubt. You're not playing this over and over again. You're like a bad record. He wants you to know. So we're going to be talking about that for a couple of days, about how you can know that you are bound for heaven. And as I said, we're taking reservations. I got killed on the way to church. One Wednesday morning, uh, I attended a pastor's conference in East Texas. Incidentally, this next slide should be of the movie, 90 Minutes in Heaven. It, it's, it's, just, it's just bizarre, really. I, mean, I wrote a book, and, and, and it just a lot of people read it, and now they made a movie out of it. Um, I really wasn't prepared for that. Uh, my character is played by a young actor named Hayden Christensen. If you know anything about the Star Wars series, he plays Anakin Skywalker in the Star Wars series, um, who eventually becomes, and I don't want to give any away secrets here, but he eventually becomes Darth Vader. My kids have started calling me Darth Preacher. <laughs> but Hayden plays that part. My wife is played by Kate Bosworth. Kate Bosworth was in Remember the Titans and she was in Superman Returns and a lot of other movies. Very fine actress, very beautiful lady. And, uh, and this was uh, Senator Fred Thompson's final movie. He was in this movie. He passed away just about the time the movie was being released. Uh, he was not well while we were uh, filming the movie. But uh, he really wanted to be in it and really did a great job playing my mentor, my father in the ministry, uh, who straightened me out. You'll find out what that means a little bit later on. Dwight Yoakam is in the movie. A great Christian songwriter, Michael W. Smith, is in the movie, uh, wrote some of the great uh, songs of the past uh, 30, 40 years, uh, and uh, he and his son wrote the soundtrack for the movie as well. So it was a very humbling thing to have a movie uh, made about your life. Um, my life is for sale at Walmart already, <laughs> and now there's a movie about it. Well, I left this camp. Um, on a Wednesday morning uh, called Trinity Pines. And I had been there for three days with a lot of other preachers, and we had a pastor's conference. And so we pulled out of the camp. You can go ahead and show that next picture. And that's it, Trinity Pines, except the sun's shining there, and it's, you know, a nice day. When this happened, it was not shining, and it was not a nice day. It's probably about very near freezing, uh, and it was raining. Really a miserable day, actually. But I'm ready to go home. I, I've been in the conference three days. It's been a great conference, and I'm headed back to my church. Now, this is in East Texas. My church was south of Houston in a small town called Alden. And so that's where I was headed. 
Uh, if you know anything about baseball, one of the most famous baseball players of the past 50, 60 years is from Alvin. Nolan Ryan is from Alvin, Texas. And so um, I'm headed there. In fact, the church where he attended was right across the street from my church. And so headed there. Lead a Bible study on Wednesday night. I did not make it for many, many, many months. There was a great deal of doubt whether I would ever make it to church again. So at the gates, I made a decision to go home a different way than I had come to the conference. It didn't seem like a very important decision at the time, but, you know, so many of them are. I decided to turn to the right instead of left. Now, every previous trip to this conference center, I'd always gone to the left and went back. That day, I decided to go to the right. On the map, it looked about like the same distance. So I just went that way out of curiosity. That may be why you're here tonight, out of curiosity, which I think is an excellent reason to go to church because this is where you learn things that are important all the time. Yeah, yeah. If you're curious about things of God, this is the place to be. So I was curious just about what was down that way, and I was sure about to find out. I turned that way. If you go that way, you have to cross this massive lake, Lake Livingston. And so I did not know that Lake Livingston was a man-made lake. It had... Uh, they built a dam further down the river and made this lake, and the river flowed under a bridge, a very old bridge called the Trinity River Bridge. And this next picture is a picture of that bridge. It is no longer in use today. It still remains there because it was built to honor veterans of World War I. That's an old bridge. Nice four-lane bridge beside it now, but that's the bridge. So they, people fish off of it now, and they walk on it. It's been preserved. Uh, but that day, I'm driving across it, and I've never even seen it before. It's very narrow, as you can plainly see. What you can't see very well is that the other end of the bridge, the highway goes up. It's a steep embankment. So if you're coming from the opposite direction, you're going down onto the bridge. Going down onto the bridge that day was a tractor-trailer truck, an 18-wheeler, at a fast rate of speed, way over the speed limit. He came up over the hill at the other end, and he's looking down at the bridge, and a he said a car pulled out from the end of the bridge at the last minute, and he's going to hit the car. He's driving downhill too fast. There's no way to stop this big rig going downhill. So he decides to go around the car, um, and he can't see down the bridge because that big metal superstructure is blocking his view. So in a fraction of a second, he goes around the car, and he hits me head on. The nine wheels on the driver's side of the truck rolled over the top of my car, crushing it and going off the back of my car. He swerved back over in the lane he was supposed to be in and struck two more cars. So it's a four-vehicle uh, accident on the Trinity River Bridge. So debris is all the way down to this end of the bridge, and the accident happened at the opposite end of the bridge. I was the only car going that way that got struck. I was killed instantly, which I think brings up an interesting question. What am I doing in Vermont? which is the same question I'm going to ask you. What are you doing here that matters? Yeah, what are you doing here? I mean, what do you have to show for your life up to this point in life? We'll come back to that, I promise. So the body's covered up so nobody would have to see it. It's gruesome. I mean, I've been torn to pieces. And... Um, I mean, they tried to save my life. Police ambulances came. This next picture is a picture from the front page of the local newspaper. I'm actually in that car under a tarp because 
they didn't want anybody to see me because it was um, such a horrible sight. There were pieces of me all over the place, including on the highway down there where those men are standing. Well, uh, traffic starts backing up for miles in both directions because it's the only way across this lake. Back behind me are many of those other pastors who've left the same conference that I've left who are simply trying to get back in their churches in Texas. Well, that was pretty tall order. You've looked at the map. You know, it's 900 miles across to the other side. And so a lot of them had a long way to go. Uh, I only had 130 miles to go. So many of them are backed up there. One of them left his car, and he and his wife walked up to the bridge. Dick and Anita on a record. They served a church north of Houston. Mine was south of Houston. I did not meet them. I did not know them, although I got to hear both of them speak at the conference. They told us how they started a church from scratch. Fascinating story. I've never heard of such a thing. Did you guys doze off or what? Didn't you start this church from scratch? Okay. See, it's too inside, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, we heard them talk about how they did it. So he walks up to the bridge, Dick on a wrecker, and on the way up to the bridge, he hears the voice of God. God speaks to him. Now, I want to say this to your face. I think God's doing a lot more speaking than we are listening. So you don't have to be a preacher on a bridge to hear the voice of God. But he was listening when God spoke, and here's what God said. Pray for the man in the red car. That's what God said. Incidentally, it is a black and white picture, but I was driving a red car. And so that's what God said to him. So, on the way to meet these guys, these, these uh, heroes, the people who save lives, God speaks to him and says, pray for the man in the red car. So he tells one of those policemen, I have to pray for the man in the car. And the policeman says, well, that's nice, but there's no one to pray for. Everyone else is okay. The truck driver is okay. The drivers of the other two cars are okay. But the man in the red car is dead. He's a fatality. We did everything we could to try to bring that man back. We even tried some things we never tried before. It didn't work. He's dead. Uh, we're waiting for the coroner now. We have to do an investigation because there's a fatality involved. So we're waiting for the coroner, and everything's at a standstill. Well, he, he didn't accept that answer. He, he says, I have to pray for him. So the policeman just says, well, go ahead and pray for him. No, 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 you don't understand. I have to put my hand on him and pray for him. No, you can't do that. It, 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 the twisted metal, broken glass, it's too dangerous. If you want to pray, just stand over here and pray. No, sir, I have to put my hand. So there ensued a debate between a policeman and a preacher. Wow. Talk about a tuple, couple of type A personalities. Well, the preacher won, and uh, so he gets permission to get in the car. If you've seen the movie, you know he kind of, he has to kind of tear this thing open and then crawl down under it. Well, they used an, a, a clear tarp in the movie because they had to have light to shoot the picture. Uh, but in the reality, it was a dark, uh, not clear tarp. You, you couldn't see through it. So it was dark in there, even though it's daytime. This, this, this is a real-time picture right here. This is when the accident happened, right afterwards. That's how long it took. 30 miles for the newspaper photographer to get out to the bridge. So I'm under the tarp. Dick Honorecker is in the car praying over my dead body. He crawled in from the rear. He examined me. He decided by a cursory examination that the only thing I didn't break in the accident was my right arm. It is the only thing I did not break in the accident. 
So he reaches in from behind and puts his hand on my right shoulder. He's now in the dark with me, and he has begun to pray, or begun to pray because God told him to. He's obedient. Well, he's not the only one praying by this time. Because when they found my identity, they called my home. Nobody was at home. My wife was teaching school that day. She taught school for 34 years. I never really planned on being married to a grandmother. I think that makes me a grandfather. But she's retired now, except she's back working with a private school to help some kids who need some help. Well, she was in school that morning, and she was not at home. Well, they didn't know that when they called home. Our kids were also in uh, school. So since they couldn't reach anybody at home, Eva, you know, she took care of those three kids. She continued to teach to have some insurance for the $6 million it cost to put me back together again. She uh, emptied bedpans. That's a hero. I'm a survivor. She's a hero. Well, she wasn't there, so they called the church. They found my business card in the wallet, South Park Church in Alvin. They called the church. They told the church I'd been in an accident. But they did not tell them I was dead, because you have to notify next of kin first, and next of kin has not been notified. So all my church knows is I've been in a bad accident on the way to church. They're waiting for me there anyway. I mean, I got phone calls piled up, things I have to do. Well, I'm not coming now, and so they're very upset. And um, someone says, let's get the phone book out and start calling every church in the phone book asking them to pray, which they proceed to do. That's about six million people in the greater Houston area. That's a lot of churches. They called them all, and, and those churches called others, and it just started spreading across this country and out of the country. I was in Modesto, California, oh, early last year, and because um, I'm still meeting people who prayed for me that day, and I'm meeting for the first time 27 years later. Well, I, this guy walks up to me at the book table, and he's uh, crying. I get a lot of crying people after services like this. And he's walking up and he's crying and he, he, he gets a grip on himself and he says, I prayed for you that day. And I said, well, it worked. And he said, no, you don't understand. Uh, when I got the word that you were in the wreck, I was living in Taipei, Taiwan. So I don't know what time of day it was there, probably the exact opposite end of the day because it's around the other side of the world. So he's praying for I'm still meeting people who are praying. Prayer is what I really want to talk to you about tonight because I believe it works. So people are praying for me all over the world. They don't know I'm dead. One man does. He's in the car praying over my dead body. He's now begun to alternate verbal prayers with musical prayers. We just sang some. He's singing this old musical prayer. What a friend we have in Jesus. This is a great old tune. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. He's singing that song holding onto my right shoulder under the tarp in the dark. Ninety minutes after the truck hit me and killed me. And suddenly without any warning, I start singing that song with him. He got out of the car really fast. You would. I think some of you are a little faster than others, maybe. But he, he went over to the policeman. He said something preposterous. Officer, the dead man is singing. And nobody believed that. It's unbelievable. 
And uh, they thought maybe he, you know, it was his imagination, it was wishful thinking, you know, he just thought he heard me. But he did, because I remember singing with him even, uh, even if I didn't know who he was. So he's having to really press the issue with these people, because there were th four ambulances set to the bridge, only one remains. It is packed and leaving, because they have a special vehicle to take away the body. It's not an ambulance. So he stands in front of the ambulance, since they won't come and check on me, and says, if you leave here without him in that ambulance, I'm going to lie down here on this bridge, and you're going to have to run over me, because I'm not moving until you check on him. Wow. Well, he didn't know me from Adam, really, but he, he just was that determined. Obviously, we became very good friends over the years. Well, they checked on me, and uh, lo and behold, they found out I was alive. Not very, but alive, nonetheless. So they had to get me out of that car. If you look right there on the front, uh, on the pavement, you'll see the equipment that had to be ordered from 30 miles away. Those, that's called the jaws of life. And, and removing a living person is very different from removing someone who's not, from a wreck. So they had to dismantle the car. This next picture may be uh, from the, well, this is the car. That's the real car. And you can see where they cut the roof off, barely, and, and, uh, and had to, to take the roof off and then pry open the door just to get in there to work on me, try to get me out of that car. The next picture is a profile where the roof has been removed and then put back down on the top at the wrecking yard. And uh, I was impaled on the steering wheel. This is before airbags, so the steering wheel just went horizontal right into my chest, massive internal injuries. Um, the dashboard collapsed on both of my legs, and there was, very, there was no space really left between the seat and the dashboard. My right leg was broken at the knee so that it did not go the way it was designed to go, it went the other way. It hit right above my left knee at just about an inch, really, and severed my left leg. Four inches of femur, the largest bone in the human body, was ejected from that car and never found. So I was missing four and a half inches of my left leg. The rest of it's lying on the floorboard of the car. I put my arm up when the truck was coming for me. Apparently, I don't remember the collision, thankfully, but I put my arm up, and that's the moment the truck went over me, and it took my left arm into the back seat of the car, separated at the shoulder, and from here forward was lying on the back seat of the car. Dick Honorecker had to reach over this part of my arm to put his hand on my right shoulder. My head was smashed against the side of the car, so I sustained brain damage. My wife still thinks I have brain damage. <laughs> and uh, no, this comes in handy sometimes, really. <laughs> I recommend it highly. I tell people before the accident I was a genius, and this is all I got left now. Well, I had all those injuries and more, and uh, they finally were able to extricate me from that car and then they're going to take me to hospitals. Is this next picture of the bridge? Yeah. This is actually from the movie, a reproduction of what happened on the bridge. And you can see the policeman standing there, and you can see uh, the man who plays Dick on a record, his name is Marshall, uh, walking towards the accident scene. Uh, Marshall is a very, very fine actress, were the people that were in the movie. Marshall, we had lunch before this scene was filmed, and he was crying at lunch before he ever filmed the scene. That's how much it affected him to be able to do this. If you've seen the movie, you've seen the policeman 
picking up pieces of paper off the bridge. I had a stack of sermons on the seat beside me that morning because the next Sunday morning I was going to begin a new sermon series in my church, I Believe. The one on top was called I Believe in a Great God. The one under it was called I Believe in Jesus, the Son of God. The next one was I Believe in the Holy Spirit. The next one was I Believe in Communion, the shared meal of the New Covenant. I Believe in Baptism. That's where I was going with these sermons. I never did preach any of the sermons in my church. I was never able to physically. But that policeman was picking up pieces of 90, he was picking up pieces of I Believe in a Great God off the bridge. For my family, he thought they might like it as a keepsake. I have that sermon at home in my office. It is covered in my dried blood. So Dick walks up. He prays. They get me out of the car, and now they're taking me to hospitals. And the next picture should be those hospitals. You say, three hospitals? Yes, the, the nearest one was in Trinity. They didn't even take me out of the ambulance there. I mean, my injuries were so catastrophic, they didn't. They knew they couldn't do anything for me. So I was driven 30 miles away to Huntsville Memorial Hospital, which is a regional hospital, large hospital, but still not a level one trauma center. So they, they stabilized me at Huntsville Memorial, and they know that I'm going to have to be airlifted to the nearest level one trauma center, which is in Houston, 85 miles away. But helicopters are not like airplanes. Helicopters don't fly with the instruments that airplanes do. They don't fly in storms because of the way, the, propel, the way they fly and because they don't have the same instruments. So the helicopter could not take off and land that day. So I'm not able to be transported the 85 miles by helicopter. Instead, I'm put in an ambulance and driven 85 miles down I-45 to Memorial Hermann Hospital. It was in the back of that ambulance that this all became very clear to me. I didn't originally know that I had been in an accident. I was in shock for quite a few hours. But now I'm in an ambulance bouncing down I-45 on my way to Houston, 85 miles later. I had so many broken bones and open gaping wounds, I didn't really know you could hurt like that. I, every time my heart would beat, it would be like hitting these big places with a hammer. But finally, I just said through my oxygen mask to the young EMT who was taking care of me, Sir, I hate to bother you, but is there any way you could give me something for pain, please? He looked down at me and said, Mr. Piper, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but I can't give you anything else for pain. If I give you anything else for pain, you'll probably just pass out. Um, kind of what I'm shooting for, I like to pass out. <laughs> you ever just want to be unconscious? Yeah, yeah I want to be unconscious. Doctors in Houston had told him that I had to remain conscious on the way. If I wasn't, then I, if I lost consciousness, they may not ever get me back again. So he was following orders. We drove along a little further. I don't know how much further. But I heard these horrible screams inside the ambulance. And I mean, they were awful screams. And I, I, I kind of asked him to come over a minute. And he was on a little stool, and he rolled it over beside me. And I said, I, I'm sorry, but is there any way you can make that screaming stop. It's very disturbing to me. This time, he looks right down at me, like face to face, and tears begin to form in the EMT's eyes. These people see things no one should ever have to see, and they don't see it without feelings. He said, Mr. Piper, I'm really sorry, but frankly, 
beside the driver and me, there's no one else in this ambulance, sir. You are the one who is screaming. I was a 38-year-old preacher on my way to church to lead a Bible study. Now I'm in the back of an ambulance screaming, and I don't even know it's me. I don't think I've ever been more frightened in my life than I was at that moment. Because I knew from then on, I was never going to be the same again. The accident happened at 11.45 a.m. on the bridge. We arrived at the emergency room at Herman Memorial Hospital in Houston at 6.15 that night, six and a half hours after the wreck. And I would be in a hospital bed from that moment forward for 13 months and have 34 major operations to put me back together again. So here's two things I want to talk about tonight. I believe in answered prayer, and I believe in miracles. And the reason those are important is because you need to be doing the first one, and you need to believe in the second. So here I am in a hospital bed now, and um, it's bad. I have so many broken bones and, and, and ruined organs. I mean, it's just uh, horrible. It's touch and go. I developed double pneumonia in about five days which is deadly. Forget the injuries. When you're prone position, you can't be elevated to get breathing treatments. You're just probably not going to make it. So they had called everybody in to say goodbye to me one final time. My wife is brought into the room. She knows already how bad it is. And she's given one final option to uh, amputate my two legs and my left arm so I could be elevated to receive breathing treatments because I'm in traction on these three limbs. Or they could try some experimental technique that's never been used before. It's uh, invented by a Russian doctor. Uh, it looks Russian if you see it. Um, it involves uh, stainless steel halos that are applied around your limbs, arms, legs, sometimes broken neck they use it. They put rods inside of your head and, and then a cage around your head. Well, this is a cage around my leg, and it involves breaking your leg in another place where it's not broken. Then uh, wires and rods go through the halos, through the bones, crisscross in the middle of the femur, and then they turn screws on these halos four times a day to stretch what's left of the bone, hoping the gaps will eventually close. I wore one on my leg for 11 months, and I wore one on my arm for eight months. So... I'm thinking now about the Last Supper. All of you are going to have one one of these days. You say, why do you say that? Uh, you know, it's because the death rate here is 100%. You're not getting out of this alive. We were talking about that earlier. I mean, we have one option to not have to die. And, of course, that's if Jesus returns in your lifetime and you are ready to go. But what if that doesn't happen? You're going to take that risk? So, um, he's having the Last Supper, and he's trying to prepare his followers for his death, the Son of God. They're at dinner. If you've been to Jerusalem, uh, the upper room is right above King David's tomb. I mean, down here is the tomb of David, King David. You know, women go in one entrance, men go in the other entrance. Men have to have a, something to cover their head, a yarmulke or something like that. So, it's a very holy sight. But right above that, it's probably larger than the original Last Supper room, but it's, it's the Last Supper room. 
So if you can imagine those guys that were reclining around the table, he's just washed their feet because they didn't bother to do it themselves. What I always think is wonderful about that picture, you know, they failed to wash his feet or anyone else's feet for that matter. He gets up and washes them. Without a word, he washes their feet. Some of the best sermons I ever heard didn't involve words. And guess what? He chooses them anyway. They failed, and he chooses them anyway. And they got the job done, didn't they? I mean, we wouldn't be sitting here tonight if they hadn't. So I want to say something to you if you think you've tried something for God before and it didn't work out. Yeah, he'll, he'll choose you, and he'll use you. He will. So they're in the upper room. Things started off in Jerusalem pretty well that week. Now they're not going so well. Uh, Jesus has said enough controversial things. He's really made it very clear why he's here in the first place. And the local establishment, the religious leaders and the Romans who ran the whole thing, they don't like this. They want to get rid of him. They're plotting already. And his followers know this. And they're connected to him, so they are worrying about their own existences. And we know this. Uh, we know this. In fact, all of them were martyred as far as we know except one. So they had a reason to be worried. So here they are reclining around the table. I love the Da Vinci picture, you know, where they're all sitting like they're at a banquet or something. Like looking out at what? You know, no, this is a round table probably. And they're on the floor. The reason they had to wash their feet in the first place is because their feet are sticking out to the side. And they're on cushions, like eating, passing around the elements of the dinner. Uh, the same dinner they'd had celebrated for hundreds if not thousands of years. They're still celebrating. So Jesus stands up at the table because he could look in their eyes like, like I'm looking in yours, and he could see they're not doing very well. So he has some words for them since they're not doing very well. Here they are. Let not your hearts be troubled. Do you believe in God? Then believe in me also. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you. Unto myself, that where I am, you will be also. And you know where I'm going, and you know how to get there. If you study the Synoptic Gospels, if you study Acts, you'll find that Jesus has been talking about this all along. Three and a half years, really. This should have come as no surprise to them. I'm not staying here, he said. I'm preparing for you a better place. And then all the stuff that goes with it. Guess what? They haven't been listening. It's kind of like being in church sometimes. Yeah, I know. And the reason we know this is because Thomas stands up from the dinner table. Wouldn't it be Thomas? Thomas is so us. And Thomas says, we don't know where you're going, and we don't know how to get there. <laughs> but let's, let's, give, let's give Thomas a, a break here. Thomas is just asking the question the world's been asking for thousands of years. How do I get to heaven? And Jesus answers. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So I have to say, if you're counting on something 
else to get you there. It's just not going to work. Jesus is the way. I don't know how you get any more direct than that. I am the way. If you're looking for truth, and I hope you are, He's the truth. If you're looking for a better life than the one you're living right now, an eternal life someday, He's the life, the way, the truth, and the life. I found this out the hard way on a lonely highway in East Texas on the way to church. That's exactly what happened. I was absent with the body, present with the Lord. We'll talk about it mostly day after tomorrow. But we'll talk about heaven a little bit tonight. Well, in that same discourse as he's trying to prepare his followers, he makes this statement. He says, you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Now, I don't know how you can make that any more direct than it is. I mean, here's the deal. God wants to hear from his children. I mean, whether you acknowledge it or not, you are a child of God. You were created by God. He wants to hear from you like any other parent would want to hear from their children. No matter what age you are, they want to hear from their children. When you have your own children, you want to hear from them. And he says, you may ask me for anything in my name. Well, these people were asking one of them was asking for a dead guy to no longer be dead. The rest of them were asking for a man who was told he would never walk again under any circumstances to walk into a church like this and when he finished, walk out of here. I mean, these people were praying boldly. They were asking for impossible things. I mean impossible things. But doesn't it say you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it? Now, I want to qualify that phrase, in my name. This, this really means in the spirit and will of God. It means asking what God would want you to ask in my name. doesn't mean you can just tack in my name at the end of any old prayer you get everywhere you want. This is a prayer to God, about God, and he says he will do it. Amazing. Really amazing. Well, I think this next picture, I'm going to warn you in advance is a pretty gruesome picture. Yeah. This is me in the hospital bed. You don't have to look at it if you don't want to. I, don't, I wouldn't blame you. There's that device on my leg. You know, inside of there, four and a half inches of that femur is missing, and those screws are being turned on, those halos, to try to close that gap some way, shape, or form. There is no other bone in the body as big as a human femur, so where would you transplant it from? There's no option. In the forearm, uh, there are a lot of bones as big as the two bones in the forearm. In fact, the bones in my forearm now were transplanted from my right hip. They took bones out of my pelvis and they put them in this arm. All the skin that you see there on that arm was transplanted from my right leg. Medical people have a wonderful knack for finding things you didn't even hurt and hurt that for you to fix the other stuff. <laughs> so that's how they fixed my arm. And then the inside of my leg is being turned by screws. Now, my dad and my mother lived 250 miles away. My father fought in the U.S. Army in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. One of those rare soldiers who made all three of those wars and was almost killed in all of them. He had a chest full of medals to show for his valor. He was an authentic American hero. My dad would come and see me in the hospital room. My mother came to see me once in the room and never came in again because of that. She lost consciousness when she came in. She would talk 
to me through the door around the corner. My dad had seen everything, really. I mean, he'd seen unspeakable things in the middle of wars. And so he would come and sit at the foot of my bed just out of that picture. And my dad would talk about football. He would talk about cars. He would talk about guy things. But one day sitting there, this crusty old drill sergeant from the Army who was tougher than a snake, he'd sit down there at the end of the bed, and he suddenly got quiet. He got out of his chair, and he walked around to the other side of the bed. He really, really strained right up on the stream corner of the picture. You could see my hand, the only thing I did not break in the accident. And my father takes my hand and leans down and speaks into my ear. There's no one else in the room, but he speaks into my ear. He's talking to me. My father, the old tough soldier, says, Son, I would give anything to trade places with you. My, my dad, I was a 38-year-old man, but as far as he was concerned, I was his little boy. He hated to see me hurt like that. I'm a father and a grandfather, I understand. And he meant what he said, I promise you he meant what he said. I did get better, and he, he got worse. All those wars caught up with him, emphysema, congestive heart failure, he had it all. So in a few short years, I found myself traveling 250 miles the other way. And he was in hospital, and then he was in the war hero's home, and then he was in hospice. Instead of weighing 190 pounds in the prime of his life and carrying refrigerators on his back, I've seen him do it, he only weighed 100 pounds. He was in a fetal position in a bed, and I would hold his hand. And I would tell him how much I loved him, because I do. I would say goodbye and walk outside. My mother would follow me outside. My mother and my father were married for 61 years. My mother never left him side, his side the whole time. She'd walk outside and she'd take my hands and she'd look into my eyes and this is what my mother would say to me. Son, the doctors are doing everything they can to try to make your father feel better and not hurt. But it doesn't matter what they give him. Nothing, nothing they do makes him as happy as when one of his children comes to talk to him. I think God wants to hear from his children. When's the last time you talked to him? I mean, really, really talk to him. I mean, give him a laundry list and say, I need this, this, this. I'm not talking about that kind of prayer. I'm talking about a prayer in which you really commune with the great God of all creation. You know, we're able to do that. I mean, is that not a stunning thing or not? I mean, God inclines his ear towards us? Absolutely. Didn't prayer say in Jesus name you know when Jesus is sitting there and his followers came up to him they, he didn't say they didn't say uh, Jesus teaches to preach Jesus teaches to be missionaries Jesus teaches no no they said teach us to pray and then he gave us a sample prayer that ought to tell us something right there he's really interested in hearing from us let me ask you this question what do you think would happen around this part of Vermont or New Hampshire or the whole New England area, if you decided to pray for people who are not ready to go to heaven with the kind of passion Dick Honorecker did over my dead body. 
Well, you don't have enough green chairs. This place would go crazy. They'd be standing outside trying to get in here because you're praying that way. God wants to hear from his children. I'm here because a lot of people prayed and God said yes. I believe in prayer. I had nothing to do with my survival. People prayed and God said yes. I was speaking at a banquet in Houston. We got a lot of churches in Houston. And some of them are really, really big churches. We were talking at dinner. Uh, there's a church down there called Second Baptist Church. They have six locations. They're not as big as Joel Osteen's church. But they run about twenty-five or 30,000 on Sunday. Six locations. So I'm preaching at a banquet at one of these churches. And I'm sitting at the banquet. And it was a sit-down dinner. And, uh, and we, uh, we had about 400 more people show up than bought tickets, expecting to eat chickens. Chickens must hate us. Because <laughs> every time we get together, we devour their relatives. <laughs> so you know it's a miracle. If you don't believe in miracles, I'm going to talk about miracles in a second. If you don't believe in miracles, these 400 extra people sh- stayed in church anyway. And they didn't get a chicken. Now, is that not a miracle or what? They came to church, they didn't get fed, and they stayed. So I'm looking down here at this table full of people, and I'm talking about exactly what I'm talking about right now, answered prayer. God answers prayer. And the, and the guy right down here at the table, a whole table full of people, he gets a phone call. And his, his phaser is apparently on stun because he, it doesn't ring out loud. He looks at the phone, and he does this. And I thought, well, he's going to leave. Something just happened here. He's got a text message or something. He's out of here. He did not leave. He stayed there. I almost stopped the sermon and said, are you okay, brother? Do we need to pray for you? Uh, but I, for some reason, I just led, I was led not to, and I'm, I'm glad. You'll find out why. So after the services, I signed books. I'm out in the parking lot with my son-in-law. Um, Scott, we're going to talk about miracles in a minute. I can't help saying this. If you don't believe in miracles, consider that a son-in-law who's not worthy to marry your daughter could be the father of the most beautiful children ever born. Is this not a miracle? Yeah. yeah. My mother-in-law felt the same way about me. <laughs> so we're out in the parking lot. We're out in the parking lot. Remember what I said about the Amish? They didn't laugh at any of this. So I'm out in the parking lot, and out of the dark, it was kind of a misty night, here comes this guy. It was kind of creepy. He extended his hand like this, and I shook his hand, and I said, you're the guy. He says, yes, I am. I said, everything okay? Oh, yeah, he said, it's really good. I said, what happened? He said, I have a best friend who lives in Louisiana, next state over. And we've been friends since we were like five years old. We grew up together. Uh, I was the best man in his wedding. He was the best man in my wedding. He has three children. I have three children. We just, we're just buddies. I love that guy. He loves me. But. We had a covenant that before we started having children that we were going to pray that God would help them come to know Jesus as, a, as an early and understandable age. And thank God, his three children, or my three children did that. They're all Christians, they're all believers, they're all going to heaven. The two youngest of his children are, but his oldest son, who's 21 years old, never trusted the Lord. He's a good boy. He's very faithful, very loving. He's a really very fine young man, but he's never trusted the Lord. We've been praying for that boy for 22 years before he was born. 
Tonight, you were talking about answered prayer. Pray anything. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. And you were talking about faithfully talking to God. And I promise you, as God is my witness, he said, the moment you said that, the phone rang, and my friend called me to tell me that his son just gave his heart to Jesus. He said, you tell people. You tell people when you talk about prayer, never give up. Never give up. Keep praying. Because it works. I know it works. I'm here. Well, I had a whole lot of miracles had to happen for me to be here. Most people don't know this, but Dick and Anita Honorecker left the conference that morning before I left the conference. They were ahead of me on the highway. Cold, rainy morning, Anita Honorecker turns to her husband and says, Honey, we actually filmed this scene. We just didn't put it in the movie. Uh, She says, Honey, would you stop and get me a cup of coffee? I'm cold. He said, yeah, there's a place right over here. They pulled in to get coffee. I drove past them. They fell in behind me. So they weren't the accident themselves, but they were in a position to pray for me because they stopped for coffee. That's how much my life is worth, the price of a cup of coffee. <laughs> of course, if, that's, uh, if it's Starbucks, it's about $8. I was told I would never walk again in spite of all these things. Um, They told me if they put my arm back on it, it would just hang by my side for the rest of my life, and I would have to pick it up and move it if I wanted to. But I guess you noticed, I did walk up here. These are my own two legs, and this is the arm that was in the back seat of the car. So I believe in miracle. And if you live long enough, you're going to need one. Yeah, I think God's doing some of his best stuff today. Let's look at that other verse. Uh, Sean, if we can, well, that's what the device looks like without the leg in it. Uh, back the other direction. Yeah, yeah. That verse. Same discourse, John chapter 14. Uh, Let not your hearts be troubled. You may ask me for anything. Except the key word in this one is anyone. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Did you see that word, even greater? And how he's talking, let's remind ourselves, he's talking to a bunch of guys who were there when he changed water into wine. They were there when he gave gave sight to the blind. They were there when he caused the lame to walk. Some of them were there when he said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus comes forth strolling out of the tomb, and Jesus is now telling them that after I leave here, you're going to do greater things than that. But he's not just talking about them. He says, anyone, anything, anyone, anyone who has faith in me. Well, you have faith in him. I think God's doing some of his best stuff now. I mean, we don't even close to have enough time for me to tell you all the miracles that had to happen for me to walk in here. And it just suffices to say that God is doing some of his very, very best things right now. Lady walked up with another copy of this book recently, and she's holding it like this. She's like, won't let go. It's like glued. And she bends down at a book table in a church like this, and her first words to me were, you sent me this book in jail. I said, yes, ma'am, we sent a lot of books to jails. It's the only way they can get them. You know, you can't take anything to jail and give it to somebody. 
but you, if they order it directly from you, we can send them out. I've got three on my desk right now to send out, people who are incarcerated. She said, I was in jail for my sixth driving while intoxicated. I'm an alcoholic, she said. I didn't have any community time left. I didn't have any, I didn't have any, I didn't have any probation. I had nothing. They threw me in jail. I'm in my 60s. I had never been in jail before. So now I'm in jail, and I'm having a terrible time in jail. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to act. I didn't think I was going to make it out of there at all. And so I asked one of the other ladies in jail, I said, how in the world do you make it? She says, it's very difficult. She said, but you can't focus on this. You've got to focus on what happens next. You've got to get over this lady or you're not going to make it. She said, well, how do you do that? She says, well, I read this book uh, about this guy who was in a terrible automobile accident. He knew it was never going to be the same again, but he decided he wasn't going to be bitter. He was going to be better by helping other people. Well, that sounds pretty good. Where do I get this book? Well, we don't have it here, but you can order it. You know, when you have, let you go down to the computer, you can order the book, and they'll send it to you. She ordered it. We sent it to her. She read the book. She got out on parole. She's standing in the lobby of a church holding the book like it's the most precious thing she's ever heard in her life. And she's leaning down and she's telling me, would you pray for me? I said, yes, ma'am, I am certainly will pray for you from, from this moment on now that I know what your needs are. She says, because two weeks in the day in this church, I'm going to start a Celebrate Recovery group for alcoholics and addicts. I said, who better than you? Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's a miracle. I think God's doing some of his best stuff now. So if you live long enough, you're going to need one. Maybe several. And I have good news for you. He's still in the miracle business. Even greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father. Tomorrow night we're going to talk about overcoming. Now you know as well as I knew, you go to school with, you go to work with, you live in a neighborhood with, You've got people surrounding you who are going through a divorce, a bankruptcy. Maybe their house was flooded like the good folks down in Louisiana. Maybe, well, you know what it is. They're really struggling. Their, their, their kid ran away from home. They are dealing with an addiction. I mean, they've got issues. And they don't want to go on the way they're going on right now. It may be you, but it isn't you. It's somebody you know that lives right here in this area. You need to bring them to church tomorrow night. I don't care what you have to do to get them here. Because when they leave here, they're going to know how to overcome whatever it is that they're struggling with. And you'll know more about how to help them overcome it, too. So that's why you need to be here tomorrow night. Because we're going to talk about finding a new normal. Because sometimes something happens to you, and you're never going to be the same again. Then we're going to talk about heaven and uh, how to get there. We're taking reservations. You know, this started with that verse in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And I want to tell you this right now to your face. You've got to be ready for the place. Heaven's a prepared place for prepared people. So if you think you're going there because you're good, or you're a member of Praise Chapel or any other church, that won't do it. Those are good things. They are good things. I encourage them greatly. But you know what? You're going to have to have an authentic, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what this moment is about. I was preaching in Hawaii, and big fan-shaped church. So the aisles all came down to the middle. 
I gave an altar call. And over against the side of the church, remember now it's kind of like a half circle, a lady is rolling herself down the aisle in a wheelchair. Just her. But she's not just any lady. She's a really old lady. And she's barely making that wheelchair go. Well, I lived in a wheelchair nearly two years. I know how difficult it is to push those things. Except I never could push myself at all. When you got one broken arm and you only have another one, you're not going anywhere if you just use one arm. You're going to wind up where you started every time. Well, this lady was over here, and she's trying to get down the aisle. And I thought, I'm leaving the stage. I'm going to go help this lady get down the aisle. And somebody in the, one of the seats saw her and pushed her all the way down. One of the uh, counselors, one of the pastors went down. They were having a very animated conversation. I thought, wow, would I like to hear what's in that conversation? Because she was very old, and, and she's rolling herself down the aisle in a wheelchair. And after the service was over, the, the, the pastor who was talking to her did this like waved me over. So I walked over there happily, and I leaned down to this little lady's face. She, she didn't have any teeth, and she looked at me, and I looked at her, and I said, ma'am, I saw you roll your wheelchair down tonight. Did you make a decision? I sure did, she said. I said, what is your decision? She said, I gave my life to Jesus tonight. <laughs> I said, hallelujah. I said, ma'am, do you know the angels are singing your name right now? It's written down in glory. They're announcing that you're on the way. She smiled that toothless smile, and she says, I don't think it's going to be too long before I get there. I said, what makes you think that? She says, I'm really old. I said, how old are you? She said, 95. I said, you're 95 years old, and you rode your own wheelchair down here to give your heart to Jesus? Yeah, she said, isn't God good? He let me live long enough to do this. By this time, she's crying. I said, yes, ma'am, God is good all the time. Then she lowered her head and she says, there's one more thing I need to tell you. I thought, what else could that be? I said, what, what, what else? She said, Mr. Piper, this is the first time I have ever been in a Christian church in my life. She said, people have been asking me for almost 100 years to come to church with them. And tonight I just did it to get them off my back. (laughs) And look what happened. So here's my word for you right now. If a 95-year-old woman can roll her own wheelchair down the aisle and give herself to Jesus, you can. So whatever you think it is that's keeping you back, just put it aside right now. Because we are taking reservations right now. And we're going to be taking them tomorrow night and the next night and the next night. That's what this is all about. We're trying to get people into heaven and help them have a better trip on the way. That's why, that's why we're here. So I'm going to pray for you in a second. And then we're just going to be down here. We'll be glad to pray with you, answer your questions, welcome you into the kingdom of God, because we love you here and we want to love you there. So just be obedient. Hey, what if Dick Honorecker had heard the voice of God say, pray for the man on the red car and said, no, I'm not doing that. I don't believe that can happen. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't be standing here in front of you right now. So obedience is what God is looking for. You don't have to understand it. Just do it. By faith. Just do it. God help you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for a church that does stuff like this. I want to be a part of a church like this. Who just opens up the doors to the community where they live and say, we care about you. And so uh, they do. And here are the folks. Lord, we have more work to do. 
So I pray for everyone here. I pray tomorrow in particular they'll be very sensitive to the folks around them. Uh, someone who needs a good word, somebody who needs to overcome, somebody who's really struggling with a long, dark night, and I pray, Lord, that they'll somehow be able to get them. Holy Spirit, come upon those people and guide them here so that tomorrow night we can help people have a better life on the way to heaven. Right now, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're praying for every soul in this place. If there's anyone here right now who's not sure, they don't know that they're really saved, I'm praying right now, Holy Spirit, come upon them. Speak to them. Make it crystal clear so that they'll know when they leave here tonight, there's a new name written down in glory. God help us. With your eyes closed and your heads bowed, let me ask you right now, I don't know you, so I'm not going to identify you in any way. I'm not going to come to where you are. But I want to ask you from my heart to yours, if you're not sure that if something were to happen to you, God forbid, on the way home from church tonight, like happened to me on the way to church, if, if you're not sure that you would go to heaven, you'd take your last breath here and your next breath in heaven, and you'd like for me to pray for you, just lift up your hand where I can see it. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? All right. Put them down. Lord, you see these hands of honest folks. Folks who are just maybe struggling with it, maybe aren't sure, maybe they don't feel worthy. Well, none of us are, but, but they want to be sure. They want to be certain that their name is recorded in heaven and that everybody up there is expecting them. And they can live with confidence from this moment forward, knowing that when they take their last breath here, they're going there. By just bowing their heads and hearts, all of us can do this, whether you lifted your hand or not, and just saying, dear Lord, I, I know that you are who you say you are. Yeah, Jesus, come into my heart and save me because I can't save myself. I know I'm a sinner and I'm not just sorry for my sins. I want to change. So change me. Save me. And then I want to serve you for the rest of, the, rest of my days. Till you call me home, Help me found faithful here. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Heads bowed and eyes closed. The Bible says if you say that and you mean it, you believe it, they're writing your name down in heaven right now. The angels are singing your name, announcing that you're on the way. Wouldn't you want somebody to know about that? Well, in a moment when we stand, why don't you come down and share it with one of us? We're not going to embarrass you or we're not going to ask you to say anything right now. We just want to know how to pray for you. This is the best thing that ever happened to you. I'd sure want to share that with someone else. Maybe you need prayer. Maybe you need a certainty. Maybe you, maybe you want to pray. I've talked about prayer. Maybe you need a miracle. Whatever God's telling you to do, when we stand in a moment, just be faithful. We'll pray for you. We care about you. We love you here, and we want to love you there. So help you to, God help you to be obedient right now, in this very moment, in Jesus' name. Let's stand together, would you? Music's playing. Just come to Jesus, would you? You made that decision? Come on. Come for prayer. Come on. Don't hesitate. Come for prayer.
John speaking to you?